0: Good morning and welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wolt. On this podcast, I interview the coffee professionals of the West Coast, and this is part two of my interview with Chris O'Brien, the founder of Coffee Cycle Roasting. Chris has been our resident coffee smarter expert, but this was the first time that I've ever gone in-depth with him and done an interview about his coffee journey. In part one, released a few days ago, we covered his backstory, including his journey into coffee and why he decided to start roasting coffee at all. In today's interview, we cover how connected the coffee community is, his burgeoning direct relationships with a Costa Rican farm, and the support he's received from the bicycling community. It is unusual for me to interview someone I know so well, and I'm glad that I did. I know Chris a lot better than I did before, and I think we were able to go deeper on some topics than we normally do on this show. I think that I'll be a better interviewer in the future for it, and I suggest you check out part one of this interview, which I'll link to in the show notes, or just head to roastwestcoast.com where you'll find that interview and all of the other Coffee Smarter episodes that we've done with Chris in the past. On the website, you can subscribe to the podcast newsletter and get all of these coffee podcasts sent to you right in your inbox. And while you're online, please take a moment to follow at Coffee Cycle Roasting and at Coast on Instagram. At this point, I'm assuming you've got a full mug of coffee, or perhaps you've picked up a Cortado from your nearest coffee roaster, because it is time for the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast and the continuation of our interview with Chris O'Brien, founder and head roaster at Coffee Cycle Roasting. So I want to just say, uh, before we go too much further into this story, which there's still quite a bit to go, I think, I remember visiting you on the side of the road. Uh, we had just met, I think, uh, at that point early on in our friendship, but I remember being impressed at how many cyclists in particular came to visit you in this weird spot on the side of the road. And I mean, bicyclists, you know, spandex and uh, Sunday rides, and they kind of made a point to seek you out. And I don't want to say keep you going, but but support you as somebody who was passionate about bicyclists. And that was kind of that community that I saw building there. Now, fast forward um, a year and you are rolling into a new location in Pacific Beach and we're talking about community. It feels like that community came with you and then you kept adding to it uh, from the surrounding neighborhood. Would you say that sounds correct or am I off base there?
1: No, absolutely. And um, it's actually... I mean, it's really humbling to think about all the support that I've received over the years, you know. And, and you know, I, I, I talk about it and I'm like, oh, you guys are so amazing. And people are like, oh, you, you you get what you put out. And I, I just, I don't like taking credit for it because it seems very uh, self-aggrandizing and, and full of hubris. But, you know, we just hosted a ride on Thanksgiving Day. Up Mount Soledad and it's a, uh, it's, it's a ride that's been going on for 14 years. And we were recently just asked to be the host of it uh, because of some changes. And, um, and I looked out at this very large group of cyclists out in front of my shop and there were so many cyclists that had been to my cart on the side of the road and had been supporting me for years and have coffee cycle mugs and tumblers or are selling, product in our little maker's market permanent setup in our shop or coming to the event we're having in december or you know it's just it's overwhelming a lot when i think about about um that support that i've had from cyclists over the years um and from that community and it's an interesting community because it's not just one community it is a bunch of different communities and you know i think one of the things they love about our cart uh, my cart and then our shop is um is they love that it stitches all those different ones together you know you can be on the velodrome as a track cyclist or a really fast roadie or someone who rides for ucsd or someone who rides with you know your three old buddies that you've been riding with forever and just have a thursday morning fiesta meet up and you know whatever it is it's like it brings it all together. And, and, you know, I have a a cyclist friend from LA who was at the shop yesterday as he was visiting and there are these three guys that have had a Thursday morning group around Fiesta Island for, you know, however many years. And I went outside to talk to each of them and I connected them a little bit. I went back inside and they talked for 20 minutes. And all of a sudden now they know each other. So there's cyclists in LA now that know cyclists down here that aren't part of like any big clubs or anything. And I think that 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 has a real appeal to people. You know, I think it's, it's nice to be part of a community. I think it's nice to be part of something bigger than yourself. And bikes are good at that. Bikes are good at bringing people together. But so is coffee. And so combining the two of them, Really seems to have have hit a nerve with with those people that are into cycling for the community, but it's, it was really really humbling to think about how much they've supported me over the years. And you know that that location on the side of the road one of the reasons I thought that it might work because I, I you know if I look at the the traffic numbers on that road something like five thousand cars pass in front of that spot every day, which is which is pretty low. My current location is something like. 35,000 cars that pass in front of it every day. You know, I think one of the reasons I thought it would work is that it was pretty close to Fiesta Island, which is, you know, the spot in Mission Bay here in San Diego where cyclists go to do workouts because it's sort of this artificial island that has a one-way road around it where they can ride without stopping, legally ride without stopping, um, and therefore get a dedicated workout time in. And the road also has shared right-of-way between cars, bikes, and I think horses. i um, <laughs> seen horses on there like once or twice, but not really on the road because there's plenty of island for them not to be on there. But anyway, you, you tend to get treated fairly well by cars because there's so many cyclists there. And so it was kind of on the way there. It was also sort of on the way of a lot of bicycle commuting as far as like a corridor to connect the more downtown, densely populated urban area of San Diego and some of the more remote tech job office areas up north like you know qualcomm and whatnot like that up in sereno valley things like that and so i think that a lot of those tech jobs and office jobs ucsd um researchers things like that up at the the university up there i think they tend to have a lot of cyclists in their communities and they like to do bike commuting because it's a great way to commute one and to get cycling in too and so I kind of was like, hey, you know, this spot isn't that great by any metric that someone who's not a cyclist could see, but from the perspective of a cyclist, it actually hits two of these things pretty cleanly, a major commuting route and a major workout route. And so it got us a good amount of exposure there. And some of those, some of those people, you know, definitely do still come pretty regularly and I'm very grateful.
0: So you've moved into Pacific beach and you're running the shop. One thing that you were known for was you were really stringent about only serving kind of the best coffees from other roasters. I mean, you were, you were searching for other roasteries and holding them accountable. I know in a few instances where you had been serving a roastery that maybe you didn't feel was living up to the standard of coffee you wanted to, to present. And when I say that, I don't mean that as a critique on anyone. It's just that you wanted as a shop to present the very best possible version of that coffee that some roaster had made to the customer. Fast forward a couple of years, you've got a, a coffee shop that has gone through, you know, successful times, slow times, up up and down times. The pandemic hits, you go into that, and at some point, I know you've always had in the back of your head doing some roasting on your own, but what happened, um, to make you decide to turn coffee cycle into coffee cycle roasting? And then was there any sort of fear in taking that risk? Because you've kind of made your reputation as a guy who can be real particular about (laughs) the coffee that he serves. And that's the nicest way I can think of to say, you can be a real ass about it, Chris, uh, in a way that I respect and appreciate
1: Thank you for that. <laughs> you know, it's actually, it's funny because I think it came up a couple other times recently, um, but it's actually, it's, it's actually a really clear and clean spot where the decision to launch the roasting came from. And, you know, to go far enough back to it, I have to go back to BirdRock. And I was working at BirdRock and I think it was two weeks before I was hired this girl Nikki was hired and Nikki worked there uh, almost as long as I did. Yeah. Almost as long as I did. And she became the manager of the store for a number of years and everybody loved Nikki. She was this quirky, weird little chick who just got along with everybody and was just very independently herself. And we had this one customer who just kind of bonded with Nikki and I really well. His name is Johnny And he was a lawyer and so I've known him now for, you know, probably about 10 years because I met him pretty early on there. And, you know, one of the things I love about specialty coffee is that it can ignite a passion in the customers for the coffee and for the ethics of the international coffee trade. I've talked about how you are super inspirational as one of our success stories. uh, And I think one of our Coffee Smarter episodes because you used to drink terrible coffee and now you drink good coffee and you therefore support a lot of better, more ethical supply chains, at least in general, on average, because of that. And Johnny is another one of our great success stories because Johnny was a, is a, is a lawyer. He's a, he's a litigator here in San Diego and he does some work for the surf rider foundation, but as a customer at bird rock, and listening to us, the educated baristas, talking about direct trade and the ethics of the supply chain for coffee, he really wanted to make an impact specifically in coffee, and he wanted to take, and these are his words, his gringo lawyer money, and use it to help better a specific coffee community. And Johnny's also a surfer. That's one of the reasons he works for Surfer or uh, does some work with Surfrider Foundation. He loves the ocean. He loves loves the sport of surfing. And he spent some time down in Costa Rica surfing down there. And he loved some of the culture around coffee down there. And and, um, and he said, Hey, you know, I said to Nikki and I, He said, Hey, I think I should go buy a coffee farm in Costa Rica. And Nikki and I said, Mmm really <laughs> do you want to do that <laughs> but obviously his intention was very pure and good you know he wasn't trying to to try to whitewash it or tell them what to do um which is great and you know I got to talk with Johnny the other day a couple months ago in in some more depth about what he did down there and 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 his connection down there but ultimately jo- Johnny didn't quite buy a coffee farm but he went to the most famous coffee production region in Costa Rica, which is Tarazú. And Tarazú is less famous in some of the specialty coffee world because so many of the farms there have been bought up by corporate interests, such as Starbucks. And he went and he drove all around the mountains in Tarazú uh, through these coffee farms looking for independently owned coffee farms. And he he finally found one. And instead of trying to buy the farm out from the guy, because he didn't want to whitewash it or do anything stupid like that, he established a relationship with the owner of the farm and said, hey, I'd like to use my gringo lawyer money to better your farm and to help promote your farm and to help your farm improve to the point where you can help improve the lives of your family, your workers and the community that surrounds your, your farm. And he worked with a town close to the beach, not too far away, about two, two and a half hours drive away down, down the water, who serve, who now serves, I don't know if they did originally, but they serve coffee from that farm exclusively. And they have this kind of cool coffee shop in this surfing community in Playa Negra and after a number of years working with the farm owner down there, he helped build a processing facility on the farm owner's land. And so he owns all this processing equipment and this 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 building with, with this processing facility in it. But he doesn't actually own any land down there. But he wanted to work as a representative for that farm owner and to work together with the farm owner and the cafe that he has some ownership of as well. And he wanted to work with them to just kind of improve everything down there for them by working with specialty coffee people in the United States, because he'd seen that model sort of work with bird rock um, and the direct trade coffees that bird rock bought and paid bonuses to farmers and all that sort of thing. And so when he came back up to the U S to San Diego, his law firm is in the same building as a fairly large coffee importer, ICT. Intercontinental Coffee Traders, ICT. And so he talked to them about what it would take to get coffee up here because they're in his building and he has a relationship with them. And then he sought me out because he knew that I had opened my shop. He had been kind of following along. We were sort of friends, but we hadn't seen each other much. And he said, hey, I kind of own this farm, sort of. I'm representative for it. I have this Costa Rica coffee I want to form this direct relationship with you if you're interested. And I wasn't roasting at the time. So what am I going to do with hundreds of pounds of green coffee? So luckily I knew another roaster, a small roaster, you know, uh, his shop was a similar size of mine. He uh, used to live in the neighborhood of Coffee Cycle's current location. And he had come in early on when we opened up and had some really good cups of coffee. Because like you said, I try to be you know, pretty meticulous and and specific with my coffee. And so this guy, Jimmy is a really great guy. Jimmy Silva at Jaunt Coffee Roasters, who I think has maybe been on the show.
0: Yeah, he was the first interview this season.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. Jimmy's a great guy. So Jimmy, I think, was taking a course at Bump Coffee Roasters at the time to learn how to roast coffee because he had been running his little coffee cart, Morning Bird Coffee, for a while and he was about to make this next step to open up Jaunt Coffee Roasters up in Mira Mesa.
0: Not to correct you too much, but it was his wife's coffee cart.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. That's very cool.
0: She worked at Crown Point Coffee and um, oh. she opened this cart and then he was in marketing and he was helping her and it just kept, grow- you know, it kept growing very and he kept cool. getting more and more passionate about it.
1: I love her, man. This is great. Yeah, they're, they're they're a great little family and I really like Jimmy and he's been really doing a great job with coffee lately, too. Gotten some really cool scores from Coffee Review and just some really excellent tasting coffees. But, and the shop is quirky and wonderful. You know, it's just a good, good community stop up there. Um, but so I connected Johnny and Jimmy and I said, hey, and yes, I do know that it is sort of frustrating that one of them is named Johnny and the other one's named Jimmy <laughs> and I have to keep them straight every time I'm talking about them. But, anyways, Johnny from Costa Rica, you know, I connected him with Jaunt Coffee Roasters and. We got some samples roasted up of some of the coffees that Johnny was able to provide. And I tasted them and Johnny asked me, he said, hey, are any of these coffees good enough for you? Is there any way we can work together? And, you know, one thing I learned at Bird Rock, among many, is the value of forming a relationship and the variation in a farm's output. Um, One of the first direct trade relationships Bird Rock had was with a farm in Guatemala called Finca Santa Ana. And every year that I worked there, Finca Santa Ana coffee was bought by Bird Rock. And the first year that Bird Rock established a relationship with them, they had placed in the Cup of Excellence, which is a competition that coffee farms kind of participate in a lot of coffee producing countries to promote coffee farmer identity and to promote specialty coffee in general. And Finca think of Santa Ana's coffee some years was really, really good. In other years, it was okay. But then it would come back, and it would be really, really good again a couple of years later. And it was always good enough to do something with. And so I tasted all these samples from Café Corazon, the name of Johnny's coffee farm down there. And I said, you know, these aren't the best coffees I've ever had, but they're very good. Um, they're they're quite good, you know. There's I've had plenty of coffees that are better, but they're they're good. And I said I think I can work with this. And so, Jaunt Coffee Roasters started roasting them for us, and we established sort of this this through a relationship where Jimmy at Cafe Corazon would get the coffee to Jaunt Coffee Roasters. I'm avoiding saying Jimmy's name just for confusion purposes. Uh, he would get the coffee to Jaunt Coffee Roasters. They would contract roast it. Jimmy in Costa Rica would pay Jaunt to roast it. And then I would pay Johnny as if he was a wholesale coffee roaster providing coffee to me. And in this way, we sort of had this weird shortcut direct trade relationship um, where I wasn't a roaster, but I still had a direct relationship with the farm, um, which was really great for sort of the, the philosophy that our shop has always tried to promote, which is that this really good coffee that we're trying to serve you has a purpose. And the purpose is to convince you of the value of ethical coffee trading and to convince you to continue investing your money, one cup of coffee at a time, into this idea of specialty coffee and making a more ethical, better supply chain. And so it's great because I can, I can see the results, right? I, I see photos from the farm. I have an open invite down to the farm. I've sent customers down to spend a night on the farm before and they've had a great time and told me all their, you know, all their stories. They went with the farm owner to buy a cow one day because it's not a tourist experience. It's a genuine coffee farm experience. I don't know what they needed the cow for. I don't think I had anything to do with the coffee. Um, (laughs) And so we had this good relationship with the three of us, but John Coffee Roasters was growing a lot and I wanted to do more. I wanted more direct control over it so that I could experiment with it and see what I could get out of it because with Jimmy being contracted by Johnny, sorry, with John Coffee Roasters being contracted by our Costa Rica coffee farmer friend, I had say in it, obviously, because I'm the end consumer, but I didn't have the the control that my my obsessive nature needs. You know, um, if I have a pour over in front of me, And I'm making it, I can do whatever I need to to adjust it. But with it being roasted a couple miles away, if I wanted a slight change in it, it was hard to affect that change because there's also interpersonal relationships. Like obviously, Jaunt is roasting it as good as they think they can, but maybe they're not roasting it as good as a coffee that they would be serving. Or maybe they're not putting the same quality control into it. And they're expecting me to do the quality control, but I don't have the same voice in changing it. So it was, it was an interesting situation where I was very happy with it. And I I really cannot speak more highly of Jimmy or Johnny or any of the people involved in this story. The frustrations came from the nature of the relationship and it wasn't a super frustrated position for me to be in. But when my friend Luis opened up a Coffee Roasters, uh, just five miles down the road from me, Johnny from Costa Rica had met Luis a couple times and they had really hit it off. And Jimmy was at Jaunt was sort of outgrowing our relationship in some ways. Not that he didn't, he was amazing. I really cannot speak more highly of Jimmy at Jaunt, but sort of Johnny from Costa Rica and Luis sort of made this agreement to move Johnny's roasting down to a Cento and the move was discussed with me you know, a couple times leading up to it and I was in support of it, but I also didn't want to rock the boat too much. You know, like I said, I was kind of at this end user client position that was awkward because it was a strange arrangement. Um, it wasn't what most shops do. And there's probably good reason for that <laughs> because it was a little bit, uh, complicated. Um, but at any rate, one week, suddenly coffee roasting, all moved down to Asento and I wasn't really quite ready for it. And I don't think Luis was really quite ready for it either, even though we had kind of discussed it. Luckily, at that point, because we had sort of known it was was coming, I had bought a small sample roaster. It can roast about 120 grams at a time. And I had been practicing on that and learning the basics of coffee roasting. And I'll say that Coffee roasters in general are very, very cool and supportive of other people roasting coffee. I've had nothing but amazing support from Interim Coffee was letting me use some of their green to learn. Asento was letting me use some of their his green to learn, green coffee, to learn how to roast. You know, it's only 120 grams at a time. But still, from my perspective, spending hours in front of this little machine trying to learn how to roast coffee well, reading these books by Scott Rao and Rob Hoos, you know, I was trying to learn how to roast this coffee, and I was finally getting a handle on it on this tiny little machine when suddenly all the coffee gets moved from Jaunt Roasters down to a Cento and I'm told, okay, Jimmy's not going to roast your coffee next week. Jaunt's not going to roast your coffee next week. And I go, okay, great. I hope he's he's okay with that. Okay, he's okay with that. All right. Um, so who's going to roast the coffee? Oh, uh, you know, you or Luis. And then I said to Luis, okay, so... um." you know, I need 35 pounds for, for next week. And he goes, Oh man, why don't you roast that? I'm pretty busy today. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) So I really got kind of thrown into it.
0: I actually thought my computer froze there for a second (laughs) because of the look of shock on your face when you were remembering that moment.
1: (laughs) I was really, really shocked. It was, um, I was barely ready. I'm not going to say I wasn't ready, but I was barely ready. You know, I I think I had thrown in, you know, one batch of coffee in the bigger roaster and Louise sort of walked me through how to how to use the bigger roaster once. And suddenly I'm having to build and develop a profile for this coffee. And I didn't really have a lot of information about how to do that, other than my practice runs on the sample roaster over the month or two beforehand. Um, And luckily, the sample roaster that I got, it's the Quest M3, is basically a scaled-down production roaster, so it has very similar controls over what a production roaster does. It's electric instead of gas, so there's a big difference there. It's uh, 120 grams at a time versus, you know, 2 to 10 pounds at a time. But luckily, there was enough crossover, and the software was the same because we plug our laptop into whichever roaster we're using. And we're able to track track the roast temperature curves. And I'm sure Siri, who I know is your roasting expert, has talked a little bit about stuff like this. But we track the, the data from the roasting, and we make adjustments based on the data. And we try to learn and grow and try to always, you know, make the coffee a little bit better every time. And once we feel like we have it at perfection, trying to repeat it perfectly every time is then the next challenge. And so... Over our, uh, over our time working down there, we've, we've gotten, I think, pretty good at it. But yeah, getting thrown into it like that, it really was sort of this, um, this vague plan that sort of had to suddenly happen. And now that I'm kind of telling that story right after telling the story of moving Coffee Cycle into a permanent location, I'm like, oh my God, is this just my whole life? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it kind of is. <laughs>
0: So you're thrown into that. I'm going to go back to the, to a question I'd asked earlier, which is, were you afraid to share those coffees with your cu- customers who you've spent four years teaching, educating, hey, this is what coffee, good coffee tastes like, and this is how it should be presented. And now you as a, a new roaster, so to speak, uh, a rookie, I mean, frankly, okay. you are sharing your own coffees was there a fear there that you were going to get rejected or that your customers would say, uh, yeah, no, why don't we go back to the old way?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it really is like every day still, after a couple months of this at least, and after some of our recent successes, it's still sort of terrifying because we really did get to work with some of the most amazing coffees in the world. I think, It was two years ago that our pour over bar menu had, maybe it was only a year ago, but you know, Coffee Review lit releases a list of the top 30 coffees of the year. I think we had three different coffees on there that were on the top 30 coffees of the year because we worked with multiple different roasters. And so we had three or maybe even four. You know, we had one or two coffees in the top 10, like, you know, and every year it was kind of like that, you know, the first year that we were in the permanent location, I remember we had, you know, some coffee from Bird Rock that was, you know, a top 10 coffee, one, one coffee from JBC that was a top 10 coffee and, you know, another one or two from JBC that were in, you know, the, the remainder of the top 30 and not that that's a be all end all list of all things, but just as, as some kind of metric of how good our coffee was, you know, or is, it's like, Yeah, there's some big, big boots to fill. And so launching the roasting and buying the coffees had a lot of that intimidation factor to it. Uh, Submitting coffees for coffee review had a lot of that intimidation factor to it. But one thing we learned is we started doing more and more cuppings of coffee samples. You know, we'd get samples from all these different importers and we'd roast them on the sample roaster and we'd grind them up and we'd cup them. We'd taste them together against each other. But because we were still serving coffee from JBC and we have still have some good personal relationships with some people at Bird Rock. And we have those coffees from Jaunt that have been doing really well. And, you know, just kind of the the broader coffee community brings us enough coffees from other places. Nostalgia coffee has some amazing scoring coffees and top rated coffees. We're able to cup those all next to each other and do a kind of a comparison tasting. And so we're getting samples from this importer and this importer. We're getting samples from this Guatemala farm and this Guatemala farm. And, you know, this Ethiopia and this Ethiopia. And then fortunately, we have a very similar coffee, similar style of coffee from JBC or from Nostalgia or from, you know, wherever that scored a 95 points or 94 points or whatever it is. We're able to cup them right next to each other and say, wow, this one definitely isn't as good as this one. Or wow, this one definitely is better than this one. And so that kind of gave me a little bit more confidence to say, All right, I might not know everything about how this works. I might always be learning, and and I love to always be learning. I'm very proud of that, about coffee brewing, extraction, history, science, and definitely roasting. I want to always be learning, but to actually be able to taste it and say, I can tell. And I think a lot of that is just the fact that I've been drinking really good coffee for so long that flaws do stand out to me in some ways. And I I don't think I have that great of a palette, but I do think that a lot of palette is trained. And a lot of what I have inadvertently trained is an ability to pick out flaws just by drinking relatively flawless coffee for so long from such incredible producers like Bird Rock and JBC and Nostalgia and now John, and now us.
0: I would say on that note, you just had your very first coffees reviewed by Coffee Review, which we just did an episode all about talking about coffee reviews. And you did pretty dang well. Uh, You got a 94 on your Kenya roast, a 92 on your uh, Ethiopia Nano Genji roast, which just for context, I know they were reviewed right after Coffee Review did a whole big feature on Ethiopia where they were focused on that. So it's still impressive. Uh, So first, congratulations on that. And then second... Why did you decide so early on in this roasting program to be reviewed at all? And what do those reviews mean to you?
1: Uh, I mean, so the reviews to me, for one thing, it's nice to just calibrate your palate against a professional's palate, right? To say, okay, I think that my Kenya that's unrated is as good or better as this 90X rated, you know, coffee from this other roaster i think okay i've got these two kenyans in front of me one of them has a score mine doesn't yet i taste the two of them i say okay mine's freaking better i i want the bragging rights here you know in general it's you know part of just marketing you know it's good marketing to have some of that there It's, it's 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 bragging rights on a on an international platform but then it's also and i think this is probably the most important for me because after I started roasting, I did get customers asking me about where'd all the points go on your pour over menu <laughs> because we were serving all these coffees that had been getting rated and we were, you know, trying to sort of show off, hey, this is how good our coffee is. These people say it's this good. I had customers that were kind of reflecting that fear that I had myself of, is our coffee as good as the coffee that we used to be serving? And they're reflecting it in the fact that we had sort of inadvertently trained them to respect the system. Uh, I don't think it's a perfect system, you know, but it's also it's also better than not having a system. You know, I, I, the Columbia I was, I was drinking today, I'm torn over whether I want to submit it. Because I, I really love it and I, my customers really love it. Do I know if it'll get scored well or not? It's such a different coffee than... I can't really compare it directly to something. A classic Kenya, I can compare it to another classic Kenya. This coffee is a little bit more unusual. So I don't really have something specific I can directly compare it to that's been scored. And so it's it's a lot more difficult. And then, you know, and there's also the, it's not cheap to get coffees reviewed. So I don't really have it in the budget to review more right now. Yeah, so it was it was a hard decision to make, but, you know, I got enough... Positive confirmation from some people that I respect. Chuck Patton from Bird Rock, the founder of Bird Rock, he had tasted my Kenya and he said he really liked it. And it gave me enough confidence to say, okay, like this one I know is going to be pretty good. That being said, the scores on both of them were lower than what I wanted by one point. I wanted that (laughs) one one point more on each of them. I would (laughs) have taken two points more, you know, but uh, I guess I have to be happy with an A minus, you know.
0: That 94 just ain't good enough, you know. I guess not. You know what you should do? I think you should get a 94 and a 92 tattooed, like somewhere where you can see it, you know, like on your neck in the mirror or on your hand. So that'll always motivate you to keep roasting better and better coffee.
1: Yeah. You should have told me that before I got them tattooed where I got them tattooed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we've been talking for a long time and this is going (laughs) to, I think this this is going to have to be a double episode, but moving forward, now you're roasting. You have, the coffee shop, you're splitting time between the shop and between the roasting. What is next for coffee cycle and for you going into the future?
1: You know, it's actually pretty cool. You asked that because I actually, I was speaking to gosh, who was I speaking to about this the other
0: day? Wasn't me.
1: (laughs) Well, I think we've invested pretty heavily in green coffee. So we have a pretty large supply relative to us of each of the coffees that we're serving right now. One of them, this Columbia, I was planning on only offering for a short period of time. And then I seized the opportunity to buy the last of it I bought. I bought some more of it. And the Kenya, I also have swooped up as much of it as I can every time it gets re-released at the importer. So I don't know if there's any more of that available, but we should have a fair amount of green coffee for a while. So as a roaster, it's great to work with ethical importers to screen them for their ethics, to taste a bunch of samples from them and see what coffees they have available that, you know, can really be special and stand out. To find the coffees that we've found, we're really proud of all of them. Some of the importers we've worked with, like the one we get the Kenya from, is are very small. And, uh, you know, that importer specializes in people that are sort of on the borderline between home roasters and commercial roasters. So, you know, we, we're probably slightly too big to really be working with them. Um, and probably next year our usages might be beyond what they can do. Um, but we'll see, we'll see. But I think the best way to move forward as a roaster, who's, you know, kind of spoken about this, this quality and this ethics is to really look into direct trade. And we do have that direct trade relationship with Costa Rica which is wonderful. And we're gonna continue cultivating that relationship and working with them. I'm getting some coffees from this year's harvest delivered to the shop from them on Tuesday. Um, And we won't be launching it for a little while because we have some Guatemala we're gonna get through before we get to that coffee from a farm that I, I know in Guatemala. that's done some really great work this year and in previous years when I've had it from other roasters. But I'd really like to get to origin and establish some relationships there beyond what we have here. And so, you know, that Guatemala farm that we work with, Finca El Pilar, I've been following them on Instagram for a while since we first served their coffee at Coffee Cycle when it was roasted by Bird Rock years ago. And I messaged the person who runs that Instagram account a number of times. And it turns out that that Finca El Pilar guy doesn't own the Finca El Pilar anymore that we buy our coffee from. It's actually a different owner now. But that guy does have a farm. It's a smaller farm. And he has two friends with some farms. And Luis from Asento has a friend who's an exporter in Guatemala City who works with a bunch of different farms. And so the opportunity to get down there to start pursuing some of these relationships as a way to get special, unique coffees with a more traceable and transparent supply chain is an opportunity that I'm really eager to have. And it's not because I'm desperate to see Guatemala. I would love to see Guatemala, Ethiopia, Bolivia, you know, all these places. I'd love to go down there. El Salvador, I have a friend who owns a coffee farm down there. I'd love to love to see some of these places. But that's not that's not why. The why is because to develop and to grow as a roaster, not just to grow in sales, but to grow in impact to grow in in our story and the effect that we can have you know it, it does require those 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 travels to origin and i'm here for it <laughs> i'm willing, <laughs> i'm willing to go i don't i don't speak uh, any spanish you know i'm working on my coffee roaster spanish you know voy a tostar el cafe i'm going to roast the coffee it's pretty much all i got and the whole <laughs> style bano thing
0: it's a start What I'm imagining in my head and the way I see things visually is uh, there's this kind of circular relationship between the coffee shop and the consumers and the consumers themselves. And then there's this relationship between various coffee roasters and coffee professionals where you are your own community. And then, you know, another circle, which is between farmers and roasters and importers. And what I see you doing at Coffee Cycle is... You're combining all three of them. It's kind of like they're all kind of overlapping in different areas where you're bringing, you're small enough that you're bringing in your customers into these conversations, big enough that you are able to roast and also engaging with this community of coffee people, which is what the show is all about to try to do better and better and better things every year. And I think generally speaking, for the, in the world, there's a lot of negativity going on in the world. And I, And prone to falling into cycles of, of reading that negativity or engaging with it. But what I also try to remind myself of and what I see in coffee is and why coffee is so inspirational to me is that even when there are negative things, we're so much further along than we were before, you know, like things are so much better for the coffee community and even just the awareness of what coffee farmers go through and the coffee that we're drinking, yes. Are there still bad things going on? Yeah, for sure. Like there's still issues in that supply chain. Are they better than they were last year, five years ago, 25 years ago? Yeah, like way better. And it seems like we're only continuing to improve as people's awareness come. I mean, the fact that you just what you just said about uh, you reached out on Instagram to a farmer in Guatemala, like that's insane. That's insane, Chris. <laughs> What I didn't hear from you in that that uh, talk about improving your roasting and creating direct trade relationships was another shop in North County, San Diego. <laughs> so are you able to commit to that on the show or <laughs> how do you want me to present that, that you'll be opening up closer to my house? Mm-hmm.
1: Is that, is that something that's happening? I don't, uh, I don't remember ever. I don't think that's, uh, I don't, um, maybe <laughs> probably not uh, in, the, in the future that I can really see, you
0: know, with, uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll revisit that on our next coffee Smarter, uh, episode in season four of the show. Is there anything we didn't cover today that listeners should know about you, about coffee cycle, about coffee, anything that we should know?
1: Well, there is one thing that's very important for your listeners to know. And that is something that you and I discussed the other day. It's not yet public knowledge. It's not even on the books yet. But if I die, you get Coffee Cycle. (laughs) As long as you take care of my employees and my community. Uh,
0: I'm not sure I'm signing on for this responsibility.
1: (laughs) We talked about it now.
0: (laughs) I was just being nice. It's the holidays. I didn't want to, you know, let you down. (laughs) I do want to bring this up because we've obviously had a lot of conversations about Coffee Smarter. You're starting to do Coffee Smarter sessions in person yeah, for small groups of people. Can you just quickly tell me or tell us what you think that's going to be like? How do you take what we talk about on the show into a real life arena?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's actually... It's funny that this is falling into place right here because, you know, I talked about earlier how when we're having a conversation behind the counter with employees to each other and a customer walks in, how we try to sort of bring that customer into that conversation and how that really creates, you know, the genuine community that we're looking for and the genuine interactions we're looking for. And then you talked about these sort of different circles and communities of the coffee supply chain and how, you know, as a shop, we're trying to you know, bring those together. And I think that that, has a nice parallel there uh, whether it's you know super super uh, accurate or not it's definitely got some some nice nice symbolism there but one thing that really happens a lot when customers come into the shop when I'm training someone is if I'm doing any kind of training on someone and a customer walks in I probably will get a request for a coffee lesson. Not every time, but a lot of the time, especially if it's someone who hasn't been to the shop before, if they're just getting like a gem or like something that they've never heard before. So, you know, there's a lot of coffee companies out there that have done public coffee cuppings and, you know, helping sort of educate people about how to taste coffee and how to get the most out of the coffee and what contributes to it, uh, contributes to the, the flavor of the coffee and contributes to the complexity of flavor and what makes a better coffee or a worse coffee or what makes this coffee shop or roastery different than this other coffee shop or roastery. But I think there's so much that I've learned at least, being in the coffee business for so long that people are eager to learn and they don't realize that they don't learn it, you know, regularly and they they get confused and sometimes angry or sad because of things that they don't know, you know, and the, the classic example for me is you know when you order a cappuccino in one place and you order a cappuccino somewhere else and it's just a totally different drink. And when you're used to something and you get something totally different and you use the same word, that just sucks. That just sucks to be that person that's experiencing that without the knowledge of why. But if you have that knowledge of why, if you have the knowledge of, of what goes into it, you know, it really becomes empowering and it lets you as the consumer make more educated decisions that get you a better cappuccino or a better cup of coffee or whatever it is, you know. Just yesterday I had some talk with a customer about why does some coffee taste grassy and then vegetal and others taste roasty and full-bodied. And I'm like, well, let's talk for 10 minutes, you know. <laughs> and uh, And so I think, you know, more people want that education than even realize they want it. And I think that there's a good opportunity out there, which you've already spotted with this podcast um, and and our Coffee Smarter episodes. There's this good opportunity out there for people to get sort of this condensed information. But then also, you know, you get value out of running this podcast because you get to ask the questions. (laughs) And so I think to give people the opportunity to have the Coffee Smarter episode in person, And then have the Q&A afterwards is is pretty cool for them just because you never know what what questions tickling the back of someone's brain. And I mean, you do a great job asking me questions all the time because I had no idea what I was going to talk about today. Most Coffee Smarter episodes, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. You can probably tell in some of those episodes that I have no idea. (laughs) But I'm going to have, you know, a set lesson kind of planned out for, you know, a couple of these categories. And then in the Q&A, you know, who knows what people are going to ask me. I don't know but maybe it'll be something really cool
0: and i think the one big difference i'm seeing in your your planned coffee smarter sessions in real life and maybe some other education things that i've seen out there is that it's not predicated on the cupping which the cupping is awesome and everybody loves the cupping but this is really more about uh the education piece of it and learning to uh, appreciate the background of your coffee and, and the history of it and how it got to this point where you're drinking it and there will yes. be, t- you know, some coffee involved. There's still coffee involved, but it's not just a straight tasting, Yes, uh, which I think is makes it unique. I would also say that I've been watching this. I signed up for Hulu or no, not Hulu, uh, Disney plus uh, for the first time to watch this Beatles documentary. And you got a real John Lennon thing going on today. <laughs> I could see you playing uh, John Lennon in the Disney remake of the documentary, which I'm sure is coming. <laughs> Last question I am I ask everyone, and I'm not going to stop with you, is that when you're out grabbing a coffee from somewhere else, one of these other roasters that you've mentioned, wh- what coffee are you looking towards drinking now? And, and what, is your, what is your go-to when you're just out, say, riding your bike and you see a new place and you, you're like, man, you know what? I want a cup of coffee or I want a coffee of some kind.
1: First of all, you do know that I was born the day John Lennon died, right?
0: I did not know that.
1: That's because I just made that up. I'm so sorry.
0: What, John is dead? <laughs> I haven't gotten to the end of the documentary Chris. <laughs> spoiler alert
1: oh sorry sorry um, no but uh, you know when I go to another coffee shop you know part of the inspiration for building Coffee Cycle the way I did because in addition to the community aspects obviously we do coffee a little differently there um, but one of the things I really wanted at Coffee Cycle on in the cart and in the shop was I wanted to be able to pull single origin espressos. Lots of them. I realized when working with Bird Rock that a lot of different coffees make good single origin espressos. And most espresso you get at a shop is a blend. But a lot of specialty shops will have a single origin espresso available. And Coffee Cycle has like four or five right now. Um, Sometimes we only have two or three, but right now I think we have four or five available. That's probably the number one thing I ask for and look for at a shop. I don't think it's something for everybody, um, but it's something I really enjoy because there's almost like an alchemy to it where you, you put in iron and you get out gold, you know, or maybe you put in steel and you get out gold, or, or maybe you put in steel and you get out copper. You know, there's, there's, something, there's something really fascinating to me about the way certain characteristics of the coffee get accented and certain don't you know I tried to pull a shot the other day finally because I kind of had it for a little bit of our natural Ethiopia and I've had some natural Ethiopian espresso that was phenomenal but I've also had some that was terrible and try as I might to extract a good shot out of this coffee that I know is good I couldn't get a shot that tasted good and I, and I knew that was a risk going in, which is why I hadn't really played with it yet. And I think that's actually the only coffee right now that we're not pulling on espresso. But I love to s- experience a single origin of their roast. And I love to experience it in that different alchemical way where it's, it's created something that is unusual. That's not the way most people would serve it. Most people would serve a single origin coffee as a pour over or as a drip and then as an ingredient in a blend and so when i go to a specialty shop and i ask for a single origin espresso i know i sound like a pretentious idiot um or you know pretentious hipster whatever you want to call it but um but i also know that if they have one that i'm experiencing the coffee their roast of it their choice in choosing to serve it as an espresso and an interesting preparation of it that might, that will represent the coffee, but will also represent parts of it in different ways. And I just, you know, I, I submitted that that Ethiopia Nano Genji to Coffee Review and I got a 92 and I was a little disappointed at that. And the review on it does not really match my tasting notes for it very much, which is really interesting to me. But that's probably my favorite espresso that we're serving right now. And you can submit a coffee to Coffee Review as an espresso and get a different rating on it. And I'm like, torn. Do I want to submit this one as an espresso? Because I I do think it's better as an espresso than this is a drip. And I love it as a drip, but I really love it as an espresso. And so, you know, I just, I love that, that experience at a shop. Now, if they don't have a single origin espresso, that's totally fine. The other thing that I'll probably go to order at a shop, especially if I want to sort of like, low-key judge the shop (laughs) Uh, is uh, I like to order a cortado to me a cortado it's got a small enough amount of milk that you really taste the espresso so you get to taste the skill of the barista pulling the espresso you get to taste the roast and quality of the coffee in the espresso you get to taste the skill of the barista in foaming the milk and I think it's the hardest drink to foam and steam perfectly repeatably. And so it really is like a demonstration of a barista's ability. And, you know, do I judge an entire shop off of one bad Cortado? No, no, I'm not, I'm not a mean person about this, but I will be disappointed if I get one that's not perfect.
0: I have a vague memory of, um, And I'll mention this at the top of the show, but obviously I worked at Coffee Cycle that first year you were open. And I vaguely remember the first time or one of the times that I was allowed to work on the espresso bar, somebody ordering a Cortado and you did, you just kind of shoved me out of the way (laughs) and you wouldn't let me make it. And I never really understood until now why that was. (laughs) Chris, I really just appreciate your time. You always are so generous uh, with me and um, answering my questions. And I apologize that it took this long to have you on the show as a guest and not just as this expert that we use and discard every every week. Oh, you go for it, man. <laughs> for, for as long as we've known each other, um, I feel like I learned quite a bit today, and I really appreciate you being here.
1: Thanks, man. I, I always enjoy our time together. And today was actually, I guess I like talking about myself. Shit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: To recap, at one point Coffee Cycle's house coffees were coming from Johnny at Café Corazon, after being sent to Jimmy Silva at Jaunt Coffee to roast, in theory then being given back to Johnny, who then sold the beans wholesale to Coffee Cycle. I'm pretty sure I got that right, and it's kind of a good example of how convoluted the coffee supply chain can get, even in a fairly direct trade relationship. What I'm taking from this episode overall is that coffee creates communities of coffee professionals, cafe employees and customers that all overlap and interact with each other in ways that are both complex and yet simple. We all love coffee and are looking for the best coffee beans and the best coffee experiences, and somehow we've all found our community within that world. That's it for today's show. I want to thank Chris for spending the time and being so generous with this show. We're coming up on the end of Season 3 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, and I'm looking forward to an incredible season four in which we talk to more roasters, more professionals, and introduce an entirely new series of creative episodes to the show. We only get there with the support of both our incredible subscriber listeners, who choose to pay for content that we offer for free, just to support the creation of this coffee content, and because of our roast industry partners. Great SoCal coffee businesses like Moster Coffee, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Marea Coffee, Leap Coffee, Zumbar Coffee & Tea, Café La Terre, First Light Whiskey, Camp Coffee Company, and Cape Horn Coffee Importers. You can find links to those partners on roastwestcoast.com along with a lot more coffee content. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee.